Please open your Bible over to Galatians chapter 5. Yes, I know we're studying Ephesians. We'll get there, but Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to begin today, laying a little, little bit of a foundation as we go into this chapter. I've entitled this today, Like Father, Like Son. I don't think I've ever seen a childhood picture of Pastor Dave. I have seen pictures of him when he was dating Laura. I must say, you've put on a few pounds since then. (laughs) She's a very good cook, but also maturity comes in there, right? So so if you're overweight, praise the Lord, you're a mature person. (laughs) But I will say this, I got a hunch, I got a hunch, if I did see a picture of him as a little boy, he would look a lot like Landy. Most of you aren't, you're not a part of our family tech stream with photos and stuff, but uh, we get these different pictures of different things during the year. You know, there's Pastor Dave and there's his son, Landy, in photographs. And, you know, if Pastor Dave has a, you know, polluting the mind of his son, he has a Chicago White Sox cap on. <laughs> sure enough, Landy will have a Chicago White Sox cap on. I'm just joking, of course. You can be a White Sox fan and still go to heaven. (laughs) We're saved by grace after all, right? But um, don't tell your dad this, okay? (laughs) Anyway, it's an ongoing joke. It's getting more difficult to be a Twins fan all the time. I'll tell you, it is. But we'll live by principle. Anyways, here's the point, though. It is very common for a child to want to be like the parent. And when I look at little Landy, I tell you what, if Dave's interested in it, Landy's interested in it. They'll do different activities together. They'll go golfing together. They'll play, go out and knock around a hockey puck together. And uh, I've seen pictures of Dave and Landy, you know, out on the golf course. And there's a picture of the two of them. And it's kind of like you take Pastor Dave and you put it in reverse. And all of a sudden, down it goes. And there's Landy. And you know what? Landy wouldn't want it any other way. Not only that, but whether he can even think about it in these terms, you know what Landy wants to do? He wants to be just like Dad. He wants to be just like Dad. Did you know, folks, that should be our desire as believers to be just like our Father? Now, I'm not sure why that doesn't pan out a lot of the time. I know why, but nevertheless, it's sad. And I think it's a heartbreak to our Heavenly Father that there are times when we don't want to be like Him. But nevertheless, if we are going to, once we're saved, cooperate with Him, guess what He's going to make us? He's going to make us like Himself. He's going to work in our lives to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book that teaches balance. There are positive instructions in it and also negative instructions in it. The Bible's view of Christian liberty is never to use your freedom to do what God says is wrong. Never use your freedom to do what God says is sin. In Galatians chapter 5, look at it with me. It says this. It says, For brethren, talking to saved people, ye have been called unto liberty. When you got saved, you were free. You are free from the wages of sin. You've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, your sin nature, but by love serve one another. Instead of using our liberty as a license to do what is wrong, we should use our liberty to do what we know God wants us to do that's right. 
That is the idea. God saves us for that. He doesn't just save us to keep us out of hell. He saves us to where we would be vessels that would bring glory to him in the lives we live. So how are we to live as believers? Well, now let's go over to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to look first at the positive. Remember, I said the Bible is a balanced book. We're going to look first at the positive. How are we to live as believers? Ephesians 5 verse 1, it says this, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Number one, we need to follow the ways of the Father. We need to follow the ways of the Father. We need to look at the Father and follow his ways. You notice it says, as dear children. I find this interesting because this is the direction the scriptures always go. God never says, if you do all these things, then you'll become my child. You'll be born into the family by your good works. And so just make sure you keep doing it or else you'll lose your sonship. Now, there are people who believe that, and that is false. You notice the way and the language of the scripture. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. It is first an appeal to their standing in Christ. In other words, because you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, because you are children of God by the new birth, be followers of him. Eternal life comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You're not saved by good works. You're not kept by good works. Once we are saved, we're saved unto good works. And here's what God does. He gives us the free gift of eternal life. No strings attached. No strings attached. Once you trust Christ, you're born of God, you're a child of God, you're in the family, you can never get out of the family. You know, you're born into a family, there's nothing that can undo that, okay? Every person has a birth parent, so there's nothing, you can't undo that. Whether you were given up for adoption, or whether your parents died, or whether you're not on good terms with your parent, if you are born, you have parents, Whether you know them or not, you have parents. And nothing can change it. I'd say, what if they say I disown you? That happens, by the way. Guess what? It's a joke. They may not talk to you, but they're still yours by birth. Guess what? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a child of God. You're born again, and you're a child of God forever. An eternal God does not give birth to temporary children. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. So the appeal is to our salvation. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says this, But as many as received him, referring to Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born into the family by the work of God, not the work of man. How did God do that? Well, it's through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus made it possible for you and me to be saved. Okay, I like to illustrate it this way. Maybe you've never seen this before. This hand represents you and me, and my wallet represents our sin. We're all sinners. We're separated from God because of our sin. Yet, God says he loves us. Hates our sin, but loves us. To get to heaven, you have to be without sin, because heaven's a perfect place. No one gets in with even one sin, not even one sin, not even one lie. Not any kind of a sin can enter heaven. 
Here we are as sinners, and God says our sin must be paid for. Death is the only payment for sin. Not only physical death, but separation from God for all eternity. Now, religion says, okay, the way you become a child of God is by determining that you're going to live a good life and behave yourself and read the Bible and do everything that the Bible says that you can possibly do. And hopefully when you die, your good works will outweigh your bad and you'll go to heaven. No, friend, you don't go to heaven by good works. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast right up here. Good works don't take away sin. We need a payment for the sin. But that is the beauty of what Jesus did when he came to earth. I want you to hold your place here and look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's what God did to make it possible for us to become his children. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, it says, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Look at this. Let me illustrate it with this. For he, God, hath made him to be sin for us. The him is Jesus Christ, sinless, son of God. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. He knew no sin. He became sin for us. He died, was buried, came back from the dead. You notice what it says? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When you trust Christ as your Savior, God gives you his very own righteousness. If you are as righteous as God, could you go to heaven? Yes. And that's what he gives you the moment you trust Christ as Savior. I say, I thought he gives me everlasting life. Yes. Well, wait a minute. You said he gives you the righteousness of God. Yes. And everlasting life. Yes. And sonship. Yes. And forgiveness. Yes. An heir of God. Yes. A child of the king. Yes could go on and on and on. All the benefits that all you need do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and he gives you everlasting life. That's how you become a child of God. Now, once we are children of God, you notice, go back to Ephesians 5.1. It says, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. He doesn't say, be followers of God so you can be dear children. No, now that you're a child of God, now follow your heavenly Father. Like father, like son. So you see it says, as dear children. But the first part is very important where it says, be therefore followers of God. The Greek term here, we get our English word imitator from it. Imitator. What is the best way to see how the Lord would be so we can imitate him? That's what it's saying. Be ye therefore imitators of God as dear children. In other words, live like he would, act like he would. And when I say act, I'm not talking about putting on a show. I'm sure you understand that. So what is the best way to see how the Lord would be so we can imitate him? Through the pages of scripture. Through the pages of scripture. Years ago, there was a movement, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now, I know we covered this a while back in in our Wednesday night service. What would Jesus do? It's a good question, and I think we ought to ask it. But you know what? A lot of the time, you don't need to ask it if you're paying attention when you're reading your Bible. What would Jesus do? Can I tell you this, folks? What Jesus would do has nothing to do with our opinions on what Jesus would do. Okay? 
When we make our opinions the factor in deciding what Jesus would do, we in practice are substituting ourselves for God in our lives. Do we understand this? What would Jesus do? Well, I think he would do this. Well, I think he would do that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you telling God what he would do? Who are we? No, the only recourse, the only direction we can have is what is revealed. I want to be very careful where I am not saying this is what God would do if he was in this situation, unless I have something solid, black and white, never changing, objective to base it on. There's only one source, scripture. Scripture. Two key aspects to knowing and following the ways of the Father. First, is through the life of Christ found in the Gospels. If you want to know how Jesus Christ was, then read about him in the Bible. He modeled the Word of God. He lived the Word of God. He was the Word of God manifested. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. Everything he did was in line with Scripture. When he spoke, it was the word of God. How he responded to people. You might say, well, you know, Jesus here, you know, he did this. Man, he threw out the money changers out of the temple. I, I don't know. I mean, did he, have a, like, did, did he have a problem at that point? Did he kind of lose control? Watch what you're saying. God doesn't lose control. He did exactly what was needed at that moment. Now, that's not to say we can always do it as good as he does. What I'm saying, though, is simply this, folks. My wife and I, we read the Bible together pretty much every morning, 99% of the time. And I'll tell you what, we love reading through the Gospels because we see how Jesus was. We see how he responded to people, all ages, all types, all different faiths. You want to know how Jesus is? Read the Gospels. He modeled the Word of God, not only through the life of Christ found in the Gospels, but secondly, through the principles found throughout Scripture. Jesus Christ is the living Word. The Bible, the Bible is the written Word. The two are always in harmony as much as Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both God. This is God-breathed by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, they're all one. There's a complete, perfect, never contradictory unity there. Therefore, what the Bible says is exactly what Jesus would do. How he would do it? Watch him through the Gospels. The perfect applier of the Word of God. So be ye followers of God. Be an imitator to God. You want to imitate God? Read the Bible, read the Gospels, read the Word of God, and this is the way God would have us to be. But not only that, be ye followers of God. You notice what it says in verse 2. It says, and walk in love. What does this mean to walk in love? I love the way the Bible tells us what it means. Read the rest of the verse. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, now watch this, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. All of this ties together. All of this ties together. 
This is the highest form of love where it says walk in love. This is agape love. It is the purest of all. When the Bible says in 1 John two times, God is love, this is the word that is used. It means to unselfishly give of yourself to another without demanding anything back in return. That is agape love. It is a selfless love. It is a sacrificial love. Notice the terms here, given for us. Do you see it in verse 2? And hath given for us. And then notice the next phrase, a sacrifice to God. When you exercise agape love, you are giving of yourself to another and you are sacrificing of yourself to another. Sounds a lot like Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living, what? Sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We will never be like Jesus until we give of ourselves and sacrifice ourselves to others. Isn't he the ultimate sacrifice? For God so loved the world, by the way, that he did what? Gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We look to the Lord and trust in him, and then we obey his word. We look to the Lord, we trust in him, because when we trust in him, okay, we are living by faith. When we put our faith in God, the grace of God is what pours out into our lives, enabling us to live the life that God has called us to live. So be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This is pleasing to the Father. So we see the positive here, which is follow the ways of the Father. But we also see in the Bible the negative, the balance of this. And going along with what we ought to do, God also directs us and tells us what we should not do. We should, number two, forsake the ways of the world and the flesh. Forsake the ways of the world and the flesh. Let me tell you this, folks. This is something we need to learn. We will never accomplish the first thing if we don't cooperate on the second thing. We'll never follow the Lord the way we should if we're still in bondage to the old life. It's both. It's a balance in life. We need to be committed to both. You notice it it comes out in verse 3. But fornication, fornication, that's sex out of marriage. Let me be blunt this morning. If you are a man and a woman and you are living together and having intimate relationships, that is a sin according to the word of God. I know it's epidemic in our culture. I know our culture doesn't see anything wrong with it. As a matter of fact, if you say something like that, you're immediately bad-mouthed and talked down. Yes, even by Christians today. But the word of God is very clear. The sin is still there. And that is what the sin is. By the way, it's the root word is where we get our word pornography from. It's talking about immoral actions, immoral living. Porneo is the Greek word. But fornication and all uncleanness, and that means moral uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once 
named among you as becometh saints. Now you notice again, there's an appeal to our standing in Christ. We are saints. We've been made pure and holy by the blood of Christ. We are sanctified. We are set apart to God for his purpose. And he says, listen, that's your standing in Christ. Don't not even one time let these perverted sins be a part of your life. You might say, well, I, I fail at times with this. I get it, folks, but what do we need to do? Immediately, we need to confess it to God and then get back on track and do what is right. Fornication and covetousness, by the way, you may be surprised by this, they're really the same problem. How is that? It speaks of the uncontrolled desires of our sin nature. You want something that isn't yours. And notice what God says at the end of verse 3. This is not becoming of children of God. Children of God aren't supposed to live that way. That's what he's saying. We're supposed to live pure lives. Has anybody ever said, oh, you're a a Miss Goody Two-Shoes? Don't let that bother you. You ought to say to him, well, thank you. That's the nicest compliment I've had all day. By the way, there's no such thing as clean shoes in Minnesota in the winter. I just thought I'd throw that out there. You know that, don't you? It is not becoming children of God. He goes on. He's not done. He goes on. Verse 3 is coupled with verse 4. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient or fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Let's back it up and define these things. Filthiness, what is that? That's shamefulness. The idea is we should not be talking about things that are obscene, obscenities, dirty jokes. There's no room for that in the life of a Christian. Off-color jokes. We ought not be telling off-color jokes. Now, I know If you uh, work a a job outside of church, you know, you're in the workplace and there are people who've got dirty mouths and filthy talk and all this. I know you can get bombarded with that stuff. It's all over. They got pictures up. You get all kinds of stuff. God's saying this, you're a child of God. Imitate your father. Your father wouldn't get involved in that. Your father wouldn't go for it. By the way, folks, you may have somebody who works where, where you work, and they are very foul mouth, but they've got a wonderful sense of humor, don't hang around when they start telling jokes. You start laughing at the dirty jokes, you're marked. You're marked. And the next time you try to talk to them about Christ, they're going to bring it up to you. Ooh, look at who's talking. I see you laugh when we talk about all these dirty jokes and stuff and all that. They'll throw it right back in your face. I know. I used to work out in the world. I know how it is. No, God says, live like a child of God. Neither filthiness, nor foolish tossing, nor jesting, off-color jokes. I think sexual innuendos, okay? Foolish talking. uh, One uh, source defines it as buffoonery. Buffoonery. I don't know about you. I don't want to be a buffoon. That just doesn't sound real appealing. What are you? I'm a buffoon. Let me bring this home. We should not be watching filth on TV, on DVDs, on the internet, nor listening to perverse music. Anything that promotes immorality and ungodliness should be rejected by the child of God. Jesting means coarse 
jesting. We should be marked by moral purity. You know, I, I hear people, there are people who aren't, Christians who aren't ready for this, and they may hear this message, and at this point they're saying, oh, he's just talking about legalism. He's talking about being self-righteous, looking down your nose at other people and all this. Friend, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You're going to have to deal with this. We should be marked by moral purity. This is not some self-righteous attitude where we think we are superior to others, but a real godliness that comes from our walk with Christ. We're supposed to be like the Father. Let me ask you this. Would Jesus be telling dirty jokes? Would he be watching filth and perversion? Okay. He died for those things. He died for those sins. Well, it's not a big sin. It's just a little sin. There are no little sins. Do we understand that? Every sin brings with it the death penalty, according to Scripture. Wait, I thought there were mortal and venial sins. All sins are mortal, according to the Bible. Yikes, I didn't know that. Aren't you glad Jesus paid the price so you don't have to? I'm glad he did it for me. So what do you do if you're around and these things are going on in your midst? You know what you do? You just have to excuse yourself. You need to get away from it. Or at least not respond in a way that shows that you're okay with it. Now, don't blow a lid. Don't go crazy, okay? If you're not in a position where you can do that, I just walk away from it. People get the idea. And if you have an opportunity and somebody says, oh, you know, I noticed you walked away when so-and-so was talking about his wife, right? We've all been there. Guys are around, it's break time, and they're talking about their wives, and they're referring to her as the old lady, and she's this, and she's that, and all this degrading, crummy talk drives me crazy. You think that's going to help your marriage? You're supposed to be honoring your wife. You're supposed to be loving your wife. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what God says. I think that's what we should do. Believe what God says. Well, I don't so much do these things, but I got all these filthy thoughts and dirty thoughts that go through my mind. What am I going to do about that? Bathe your mind with the Word of God. The Word of God, the water of the Word, okay? It's just like if your hands are filthy, you go in, you use soap, and you wash them, and you wash them, and you wash them, and you get the dirt off your hands to where your hands are clean again. That's what we do spiritually with the Scriptures. We let the Scriptures wash our minds, cleanse our minds to where we're thinking right. And if there are certain things that keep coming back, then you find Scripture and you memorize the Scripture or put it on a three-by-five card or on your phone, okay? And when those things come, you, instead of thinking about that, you think about what's on your card or on your device, and you memorize it, or at least you read it, and you meditate on it, and you stay focused on that till the temptation goes away. Most people, it's too much work. Too much work. Your life's at stake, man. Your family's at stake. First Peter 1.14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In other words, when you didn't know better, when you were lost, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, I'll never be as holy as God. I'll never be perfect. Boy, we love to bring up the excuses when we face Scripture, don't we? God's not saying you're going to be perfect. But God says, this is the ideal, and this is what I want you to be growing towards. 
And don't allow things in your life that are going to be roadblocks to getting there, to growing, to becoming more pure in your life. Back to Ephesians chapter 5, which will bring us to our third point here today. Ephesians 5 verse 5, it says, For this ye know... Now you notice this this is on the end of 3 and 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient or proper, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, that is a person who is practicing fornication, For no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Leads us to our third point is this. Remember that we are accountable to God for the way we live. We are accountable to God for the way we live. Well, I thought you said we're under grace. We are under grace to serve one another to love and serve one another. What a better way to live. Remember that we are accountable to God for the way we live in verse 5. Now this has two parts to it. You notice this, God's wrath is coming on the lost man. And I think the children of disobedience here refers to those who are lost. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter 2, it uses the same term and it's talking about when we were dead in trespasses and sins. The children of disobedience here are lost people. Now, you can be a saved person and be disobedient, but that's not what it's talking about. God's wrath is coming on the lost man. God sees sin as sin. He does not excuse it. He does not see it as insignificant. Yes, he loves the world, and that's why he sent Jesus to pay for our sin, to deliver us from our sin, so we don't have to suffer the consequences of it. The only way to be delivered from our sin... And condemnation is to put our faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, John 3 verse 36, it says this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, the wrath of God abideth on him. What does a lost person have to do to end up in hell? Nothing. He's already going there. The only way you can escape it is put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the only way you can escape it. We're already condemned. That's why we need a Savior. God's wrath is coming on the lost. If a person does not put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, they'll spend forever in hell separated from God. God's wrath being poured out on them. The punishment of God being poured out on them. Awful, awful, awful to think about that. But that is the plight of the lost. So if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, trust Him. You are accountable to God for the way you live. You might say, well, wait a minute. I thought people go to hell because they don't trust Christ. That's true. They don't trust Christ. Trust Christ as what? The payment for their sin. If you don't trust Christ as the payment for your sin, His payment's not good on your behalf. You end up being separated from God forever in hell. It's because of that. Sin. By the way, when the lost stand at the final judgment, at the great white throne judgment, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, when the lost man stands there, he is going to be judged according to his works. 
He's not judged whether he's trusted Christ because he died without Christ. That's locked in now. They'll be brought back and they will stand at the great white throne and the loss will be judged according to their works. So yes, we are accountable to God for the way we live. But secondly, for those of us who are believers, I'm saved. I have eternal life. I am a child of the king. I know I'm going to heaven. Wonderful, friend. Believers who live sinful lives will lose out on some of their reward in the future, the Bible says, dependent on how we live our lives. You might say, well, that's not a big deal to me. It will be a big deal because Jesus is the one who came up with this idea of reward and loss of reward. He's the one who came up with it. It'll be a big deal. Hold your place and look at Colossians chapter 3. I could have put many verses in here on this, but uh, I decided just to point you to this one. There's many others. It says in Colossians 3.23, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve Christ. The reward. This is not talking about getting to heaven. Reward is something you earn. Heaven is a gift. Gifts are not the same as rewards. The idea of Santa Claus, okay? Well, I'm going to get all these Christmas gifts. No, those aren't gifts. Those would be rewards, okay? And we're not going to get into Santa anyway. But you get the idea. There's a difference. Behave yourself and you'll get these gifts. If you get something from behaving yourself, it's a reward. It's not a gift. Gifts are free. You don't have to behave to get a gift. No, the believer, listen, folks, we should want to get all that God wants us to have. God wants us to have abundant reward when we get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. And those rewards, I personally believe, I know there's disagreement on this, I personally believe the rewards we receive are eternal in nature. Why? Because the crown, we looked uh, Wednesday, 1 Corinthians 9, talks about we get an incorruptible crown. Incorruptible means it never fades away. Incorruptible by nature means it never wears out. That points to the idea of an eternal crown. Well, doesn't the Bible say that we'll take our crowns and throw them at the feet of Jesus? Yes, it says that, but that doesn't mean that they're not ours, and that doesn't mean that they're still not ours. There's a lot we could talk about. We don't have time for that whole issue today. But here is the point. It does matter how we live. And if you live a carnal life as a Christian, yes, you'll go to heaven, but you are going to suffer the loss of rewards when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ. I do believe there's going to be sorrow as well as joy at the judgment seat of Christ. I believe that. No, not punished, but sorrow as well as joy. Sorrow because we'll see, we'll realize, let me put it this way, We could have gotten a lot more if we just would have been more faithful. Back to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon thee. There it is again, the children of disobedience. Disobedience in verse 6 is often translated other places in our Bibles, by the way, as unbelief. Isn't that interesting? Unbelief the children of unbelief. It is referring to those who have not trusted Christ as Savior. Their lives are characterized by disobedience. Verse 7, be not ye therefore partakers with them. See, God says, listen, 
The future's not good for unbelievers, people who are living in sin. Those of you who are children of God, don't be partakers with them in those things. Don't live that way any longer. You're a child of God. We see again the appeal to live a godly life based on their standing in Christ. We are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 8. But you are sometimes darkness, at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. As we give ourselves to living for Christ as we should, it will prove out the truth of Christianity. Goodness, righteousness, and truth will be manifested. And that's what's pleasing to the Lord. That's what's pleasing to the Lord. Like father, like son? I hope so. I hope so in my life. And I hope so in your life. I hope so in your life. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not yet a child of God. You're not yet a son. I want to urge you right now to trust in him as your Savior. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.